come on down to Narangong, where narrow-minded folk belong. Bring the kids, it's a bloody good place to be. There's a bakery and a primary school, a decent pub and a public pool. There's a roundabout and a bloody good petting zoo to boot. So come on down and grab a beer. You can stay if you're from here. And if you're not, you best be moving along from Narangong. You can't. Welcome back to another installment of the Oral History Project for the charming southeastern South Australian town of Narangong. We're joined in the studio today by our very own Earl Bird, as always. He had to leave us a bit early last week in a bit of a huff, but he's... he's... Oh, Christ, what... What is that? It's some kind of interference. Now, there's there's electrical interference going on. I don't... Yeah, someone have a radio? Broadcasting... Oh, sh... Earl, is that you, mate? What are you... A leg monitor? What are you going to fucking leg monitor for? Get the fuck out of here, mate. I don't care. It's it, it messed with the fucking microphone, mate. Get it. All right. Okay. All right, good. Well, sorry about that. That's Earl. I guess his continuing legal drama has resulted in him having to wear a leg monitor for the time being. I'm still not entirely sure what he's caught up in, but it... Uh, it appears to have restricted his freedom of movement, at the very least. Last week, we brought you the first half of It's Sharon. We're back this week with the second half. When we last left Sharon, she was at a petrol station in Talem Bend. She'd left Narangong after some difficulties getting a hold of Samuel P. Marshman Esquire, the lawyer in charge of administering the estate of her dead great-uncle. Sharon's received a message at the petrol station, and she's headed inside to see what it's about. Next to the phone behind the counter, Mark had written a number on a scrap of paper. Sharon rang it, and to her surprise, her call was answered almost immediately. Mr Marshman introduced himself and informed her that her great-uncle's will would be read tomorrow at 9am sharp, and that her presence was required. Sharon was none too pleased about the sudden turn of events, but the thought of finally resolving this drawn-out affair and being able to return home filled her with hope. She told Mr Marshman that she had merely to collect her belongings from the bus and she'd take the next one bound for Narangong to arrive that evening. Sharon set down the phone, crumpled the scrap of paper and threw it in the bin behind the counter and scrounged the last of her change from her pockets. She had just enough to buy a bag of fruit jocks, which she promptly opened as she headed out the door just in time to see the bus pull away. A warm breeze blew across the petrol station, whipping up the red dust. Well, fuck me. Sharon stared down the highway first at the rapidly shrinking rear end of the bus, then at the empty stretch of road, long enough to finish off the bag of fruit chocks. She sighed and walked back inside the petrol station. Shaz! The young fellow was hanging up the phone as she walked in. I reckon you're going to miss your bus if you don't hurry. He gestured out the window at the stretch of empty bitumen where the bus had sat. I do believe it's a bit late for that, Sharon said, but I was hoping you could tell me when the next bus to Narangong will come through. Should be through in about six hours, love. I can sell you a ticket if you'd like. The unpleasant thought of spending six hours in the petrol station was knocked suddenly off its feet when Sharon reached for her purse. Her brain lurched into gear and ran rapidly backwards through the last 15 minutes, right back to the point when she placed her purse in her handbag, which she left sitting on her seat, in the bus, which was now speeding toward Adelaide. Well, fuck me. She smiled at the young man. Do you suppose... She began. No fear, love. No money, no ticket. No ticket, no bus. 
Her smile became a little more tight-lipped. Do you think I could use your phone again? She asked. He waved nonchalantly at the phone and watched as Sharon first sorted through the rubbish bin for a wrinkled scrap of paper, then rang Mr Marshman. He didn't answer. Nor did he answer when she rang again. Sharon waited ten minutes, tapping her nails against the counter and periodically glancing up at the young man, before ringing again with no greater success. Well, she caught herself this time. Other than the clothes she currently was wearing, everything she'd brought to Australia, including a wallet, her phone, and the assorted miscellany that makes up the bulk of a lady's travelling accoutrement, was on the bus and getting farther away with each passing minute. Things at that moment could have gone much worse for Sharon had she not spied, in a rack of promotional brochures for the region's best tourist destinations, a poorly drawn picture of a wallaby fucking a rat. The miracle of evolution, the brochure proudly proclaimed, now featuring the bilby. A phone number was printed on the back. It took four and a half hours for Australian Charles Darwin to arrive. Perhaps due to his extensive study of the preservation habits of Australian wildlife, he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut when he saw Sharon. Back in his ute, he quietly presented her with a warm sandwich. Her self-interest overcame culinary disquietude, and she bit silently into the sandwich without inquiring into the taxonomic classification of its fillings, then fell promptly asleep. She awoke to the gentle laughter of a kookaburra and the smell of coffee. She lay perfectly still while she waited for a hippocampus to rouse from its own slumber, then held her breath and rolled ever so slowly toward the picture window behind her. Through it, she could see a collection of gum trees, bananas, and an anatopistic selection of office furniture, but no shrieking primate mouth. She breathed out slowly. I had some carver left over from a research trip to Bali last year. I mixed it into their fruit mash earlier this morning. They'll be sleeping all day. Australian Charles Darwin was standing in the doorway to Sharon's room, looking a little tired from the drive, but still smiling. Coffee's on. Got some eggs on toast for you, too. Sharon smiled back at him. Come on, Shazza. Got to get out to the lawyer's office this morning. Get your ass out of bed. Sharon yawned. Samuel P. Marshman had the dual distinction of being Narangong's best and only lawyer. He carefully cultivated that reputation by being notoriously inaccessible, but today he'd carved out exactly one hour to read the will of Gerald G. Gardner, who had almost single-handedly constructed the majority of the irrigation ditches that made the dry dirt of the local hills into fertile slopes of golden grain. If George Shanky had harvested the fields of Narangong's success, and he surely had, Jerry Gardner had watered them. Jerry had amassed a small fortune, and it seemed half the town had crammed into Marshman's cramped offices to hear how it was to be apportioned. Sharon looked around for a place to stand, but quickly was directed to the front of the crowd, where a hard wooden seat sat in front of Marshman's desk. A piece of paper had been left on the seat by way of reservation. Printed on it in large, bold letters was one word. Shazza. Marshman himself was a small man, but he made up for it by sitting behind a particularly large desk on which he'd spread two pieces of paper. He cleared his throat, and half the town listened. <clears throat> I, Gerald Gerald Gardner, half the town scratched its collective head at this revelation, being of sound mind, do declare that this last will and testament expresses my clear wishes without any undue influence or distress. The formalities apparently completed, Marshman now paused. He looked up at the assembled crowd, and seemed to consider the wisdom of what he was about to say. Jerry was pretty adamant I just write down what he had to say. He explained to the expectant audience. You know, you know, Jerry was pretty, uh, pretty adamant in his wishes. Half the town nodded knowingly. And he, 
Well, he asked me to write down just what he had to say, so I'm a. I'm just going to go ahead and, and read what he's got down here then. Sharon seemed to be the only person in the room who was confused by this exposition. Bashman, you're a slimy cunt and no fucking mistake about it. Are you writing this down? I paid you to write every fucking word of this down. I cannot say a lot of good about that shithole brother of mine who seemed to think he grew too big for this town. The best thing he ever seemed to do was inconvenience some poor Sheila with nine months of his mistakes. There's not a lot of good to say about him, but the best thing he seemed to accomplish with his life was to leave a trail of progeny that led to my grandniece, Shazza. And so I'll leave my entire estate to Shazza, subject to the condition that she live on the land for not less than ten years. Marshman looked up. That's the bloody lot of it. Half the town turned to stare at Sharon. She stared back at Marshman. The estate includes Jerry's house and all the belongings therein, his deposits at the First Bank of Narangong, and his holdings in Shanky's automated hay rakes. All that's left is to determine the bounds of the land you've inherited, Jazza. It's Sharon... But she fell into silent shock as Marshman turned from the will to the large piece of paper next to it, on which was planted the land on and surrounding Virgo Road. Marshman drew lines across the page as he described the bounds of Jerry's land. He bought the first parcel some 50-odd years ago with the proceeds from the first irrigation ditch connecting most of the major farmers in the area, and he'd added to it over the years. Marshman read the coordinates and marked them out across the map, running first west away from the road, then turning north and navigating strange twists along dry riverbeds and ancient walking paths, before turning east again and cutting a line straight through a parcel of land marked ACDPZACFES. Half the town gasped but none so loudly as Australian Charles Darwin, who was sitting at Sharon's side. Sharon was perplexed. What the bloody hell is Akdepazakfees? She asked. Australian Charles Darwin mumbled something quietly. What's that? She asked again. It's the Australian Charles Darwin Petting Zoo and Centre for Bloody Evolutionary Studies, he said again, somewhat bloody louder. As you can see, Mr Marshman explained, uh, the Gardner estate is rather more extensive than some had thought, and it appears to run across some existing uh, structures and developments. There was an awkward silence. I don't want it, Sharon blurted out. The silence returned, rather more awkwardly. <clears throat> Marshman broke it with a gentle cough. Now, it sounds like I'm being called upon to dispense some legal advice, he announced, which is best done with a little privacy. Perhaps the rest of you would be so good as to give us the room? I don't want it, Sharon repeated when the room had emptied. Marshman looked at her quizzically. I don't want the house, I don't want the land, and I sure as hell don't want to live in bloody Nara. Marshman nodded. Fair enough. Uh, there's always been those who can't tolerate the pastoral life. We can get started in on the paperwork for you to renounce your interest immediately, at which point the land will escheat to the crown. He removed some papers from his desk drawer. I'll get started on that matter right away, but it will take me some time. Why don't you enjoy the rest of what might be your last day in Nara, and I'll have these sent over for your signature in the morning. Sharon nodded quietly. Yes, I I'll see about finding my bags, I suppose. Of course. Marshman smiled up at her. And you'll, uh, you'll be needing your wallet too. Sharon paused. Yes, she thought. She'd be needing to buy a bus ticket to Adelaide, but Marshman's simple smile seemed to suggest something more. Your debts to the estate? He explained. Sharon stared at him with no greater comprehension. You came here by way of a plane ticket, provided to you by your great-uncle's estate, yes? Marshman asked. And a bus ticket also, for the trip from Adelaide? Those tickets were paid for by funds from your uncle's estate. 
If you renounce your interest in the estate, you will of course be required to compensate the estate for the benefits you received therefrom. I'll include a more exact total in the materials to send you tomorrow morning, but I expect it'll be in the vicinity of oh, $4,000. Sharon sat in stunned silence. I'll also include a bill from the time for the conversation we're currently having. Sharon opened her mouth, but finding that she had nothing quite appropriate to say under the circumstances, closed it again, stood up from her chair, and left the room as quickly as she could. As she came up the road to Australian Charles Darwin's petting zoo, Sharon saw a strange sight. A bright yellow line led from just to the left of his letterbox, straight back down past his driveway, narrowly missing the side of his house, and all the way up to the new accommodations he'd put in with the home and away money. As she got closer, she saw the line went straight up the wall of the building and over the roof. She wandered around and picked up the line on the other side where it cut through the literary enclosure. Sharon peered inside and saw that the line extended across the floor of the enclosure, up a tree in the middle, and across the sloth, who seemed oblivious to this state of affairs and happily munched a fistful of leaves. Half the leaves were covered in yellow paint. Sharon kept following the line across the path and into the herpetarium, where she found Australian Charles Darwin painting a yellow line across a red-bellied black snake. She cast a shadow as she entered the dimly lit building, and he looked up. Hey, Shazza, he said morosely. Hello, what's the story with the paint? Well, I know you're going back to England and everything, so it sounds like Jerry's land is going to be reverting to the crown. They've already got one or two cutting-edge centres for the scientific study of flora and fauna. I don't reckon they'll have much use for another. He looked up at the sign on the wall next to the snake enclosure. The evolution of the snake. Stumpy gets lucky. I didn't realise, Shazza, he protested. I bought the place a while back and Jerry was never one for fences. He even came around a few times to see the ruse and learn about symbiotic evolution. I call it the wingman effect. He watched my lesson on drop bears twice. It's not even scary the second time around, but he still held up his fork and everything. Sharon was at a loss. I, she began, but she had no idea how to finish. I, I... It's not your fault, Shazza, Australian Charles Darwin said softly, but I reckon this painting's a one-man job. Sharon nodded, turned away, and walked back into the blinding sunlight. Sharon didn't know what to do with herself for the rest of the day, so she cracked a beer and turned on the telly. After three beers and an hour of neighbours reruns, Australian Charles Darwin was still somewhere out back, drawing lines on the ground, and Sharon decided she needed a taste of home. Janelle's phone rang long enough that Sharon began to think she'd missed her. It was 8.01 on a Tuesday morning in Surrey, and Janelle would just be waking up. She decided to give her two more rings when someone picked up. Hello? Said the voice on the other end of the line. Sharon had opened her mouth to scream a particularly pommy good morning, but her voice caught in her throat. Hello? The voice came across again, and it was much deeper than Sharon had anticipated, but not entirely unknown. She swallowed hard. Alan? She croaked out. She heard Janelle's voice come muffled from the other end of the line. Al, who is it? The phone rustled as if hastily pressed against the worn pink terry cloth fabric of a woman's dressing gown that had been stretched, somewhat ineffectively, across a man's frame. It, it's Sharon. It rustled some more, then Sharon heard Janelle's voice. Sharon? Sharon opened her mouth to respond, but for the second time that day, found herself lost for any words that would be appropriate under the circumstances. She hung up the phone. True to his word, Marshman had the papers delivered the next morning. He'd helpfully flagged the signature line and it included a pen to the front of the package. 
Sharon got the feeling that he wasn't terribly disappointed in her decision. Australian Charles Darwin, though, was particularly morose. He had promised to drive her by Marshman's office on the way to the bus stop, but refused to let her get on her way without a hearty breakfast. Not long after, they were pulling out of Australian Charles Darwin's driveway, past the fresh yellow line and the sign inviting all comers to learn about the origin of the bloody species. Just a short way down the road, Australian Charles Darwin slowed and turned up a small gravel driveway. Sharon looked over at him curiously. You've got to at least take a look at the place before you leave, he reasoned, and I reckon there's a couple of photos you might want. A pair of palm trees framed the end of the driveway. Australian Charles Darwin parked in the gravel and Sharon got out to look around at what she was giving up. A corrugated iron roof stretched down over a veranda, wrapping around all four sides of the house. Birds of paradise grew around a large rainwater tank set off to the side of the house, and yakkers lined a red brick path up the front steps. She felt a cool breeze flowing from the back of the house as she stepped inside. It was a simple house, but not at all short on space. To her right, she looked into a large open kitchen with broad windows looking out over the scrub toward the petting zoo. To her left, she looked into the living room, all wide pine floors and jarra inlays. The mantel over a large fireplace against the far wall was covered in photos. She spotted a familiar picture of her father when he was just a boy, wearing denim overalls at the river and holding a fish proudly overhead. She picked up another in which Jerry, almost indistinguishable from her father at the same age, stood in a pair of tiny shorts on the bonnet of an ancient car. Voices startled her from her quiet contemplation, and she turned to see Australian Charles Darwin with the television remote in his hand. Have a go, Shaz, he blurted out. Jerry had bloody cable put in. Sharon looked at Australian Charles Darwin's smiling face and down at the picture in her hands. She looked through to the kitchen windows at the petting zoo in the distance. She thought about the taste of a cappuccino and a kitchener bun in the morning and roo stew at night, and she remembered how frigidly fucking cold Surrey gets in the winter. And she looked with wonder at this strange and wonderful man who drugged his monkey so she could get a good night's sleep. She smiled back at Australian Charles Darwin. Do you think he gets EastEnders? What a ripping yarn. That was the conclusion of It's Sharon. I'm pleased to report that Sharon's still with us these days. She's a welcome sight down at Ruth's Bakery and you can see her about town. Maybe even run into her at the petting zoo now and then. She's actually alright for a pommy bird. We hope you'll join us next time for another installment of Welcome to Narangong. Until then, take it easy.